Well, good morning. Pleasure to be with you this morning as we worship our God and we study from His Word. We're in the midst of a series entitled One Word, and the one word for this morning is suffering. You know, when we talk about suffering, many times we look for an answer to a question. The answer to that question being, or that question being why, the answer being how, how could God allow so much suffering in the world? Why does God allow people to suffer? Couldn't he done it differently? Couldn't he have set this up differently? I'm sure that you have noticed the flood of ads for prescription drugs on the television lately. There's ads for Humira and Abilify and Eloquis and all these different drugs, right? And one thing you've probably noticed, besides the fact that the real cheesy commercials, is that there is always this voiceover person who rapidly runs through a list of side effects, right? Things like may cause weight gain, blurry vision, nausea, vomiting, change in appetite, drowsiness, anxiety, sleep problems. Tell your doctor right away if you experience fainting, mood changes, trouble swallowing seizures, signs of infection, trouble controlling certain urges, interrupted breathing during sleep, suicidal thoughts. This drug may rarely cause a condition known as tardive dyskinesia. In some cases, this condition may be permanent, whatever that is, right? Tell your doctor right away if you develop uncontrolled movements, especially the face, mouth, tongue, arms, or legs. And I really like it when in the list of side effects they include that phrase, up to and including death. I think I'll just have acid reflux, right? Suddenly, whatever I'm dealing with seems a whole lot less severe when I consider that I may have to suffer one of these side effects. You know, life comes with side effects. Every child born into this world should come with a list of side effects. Things like illness, brokenness, depression, injury, heartache, and of course death. You know, when you look at this life, there is so much excitement. There are so many things to be thankful for. There are so many things to be proud of. So many things that we get to enjoy living in this life. But there is no doubt that life comes with side effects. And there are things about living in this life that are just inevitably true. And one of those is suffering. Virtually all of you sitting here this morning have dealt with suffering on some level. And if you haven't, just live longer because you're going to. It's inevitable. It's a part of life. If we live long enough, we're going to deal with suffering. Life can be beautiful and can be filled with moments that are beautiful. There is the giddiness and fulfillment that comes with true love. There is the excitement of hearing your wife say, I'm pregnant. There's so many things in this life that we get to enjoy, some of them major, some of them even just minor things like the crisp mountain air or the waves beating against white sand beaches or, of course, West Texas sunsets. Life can be beautiful. It can be full of greatness. But we cannot avoid the fact that life is also full of side effects. The Bible comes with a list of side effects. For instance... Romans chapter 8, here's what Paul writes. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. As long as we live and inhabit this body, we're going to face trials and tribulations. Adversity is a part of life. The whole creation groans, Paul says. It longs for future glory. This world with all of its beauty and with all of its majesty is passing away. It's a dying and decaying world. And even nature has suffered the consequences of the fall of man. We eagerly await the day. We anticipate the day that we get to transition from this world that is dying and decaying into a world that we will be made new, that we will get to live in a spiritual body with God for all eternity. Actually, that phrase there, eager expectation or eagerly waiting, anxiously longing, whichever your version uses, that's one word in the original language. And it's referencing or illustrating a person who is standing forward, looking out, scanning the horizon, waiting to see the dawning of a new day. That's what we are doing in this life, inhabiting this body. No matter what we go through, no matter how difficult it may be, we are anxiously awaiting the day when there will be no more pain, no more suffering, when our groaning will be relieved. We are yearning for something better. It reminds me of the elderly man that decided that he wanted to audit a college class in a uh, Christian college. He wanted to audit this Bible class. And so he goes and he sits in on the class. And this particular day, the professor is asking the students what their favorite Bible verse is. And so they were rattling them off. And, and the professor wanted to hear from the older gentleman. And so he said, what is your favorite Bible verse? And the man said, I like all the verses that include the phrase, and it came to pass. And some of the college students started snickering. And he said, well, let me explain. My son, when he was 20 years old, was killed by a drunk driver. Drunk driver crossed the center line, hit him head on, he died instantly. He said, my faith was rocked, but I stayed strong. Then when my daughter was 32 years of age, she said she was an atheist. And she told me and my wife that she no longer believed in God and believed that faith was just a crutch for weak-minded people. And he said, in some ways, that devastated us more than our son passing away. He said, when I was 55, I lost my job. And because I was 55, I couldn't find another one. And we eventually lost our house. At 63 years of age, my wife passed away after three long years of battling cancer. 
She was my whole world. So you can understand why I like the phrases that appear in verses that says, and it came to pass, because this tells me that there's hope. The Bible doesn't say it came to stay. The Bible says it came to pass, meaning that someday all of the earth's ills will be made right, and someday I will get to enjoy an eternity with my Heavenly Father where there is absolutely no possibility of pain or suffering whatsoever. That's Paul's message in Romans chapter 8. His message is, and it came to pass. It will come to pass. There is a bigger picture. In the midst of personal suffering, he was able to discern that all of it was temporary and something that we don't always realize, it had a purpose. Suffering always has a purpose. It's hard for us to see that at times, but it always does. Paul is saying there is a bigger picture in mind and a bigger purpose. The world is wasting away. It is dying and decaying, but it's giving birth to something new, something better, something far better, astronomically better. And so we groan, but in our groaning, we hope and we wait. And in the meantime, we persevere, knowing that the side effects one day will all be gone and we get to live in perfect health for all eternity without the possibility even of pain or death or suffering. As I said, typically a sermon on suffering attempts to answer a question. That question being why. Why does God allow so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why doesn't God just step in and do something? Why didn't God create a world where there was no pain or suffering? And folks, he did. He did create a world where there was no pain or suffering. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God is not the author of pain or suffering. God didn't want this. God didn't intend for man to have to suffer or deal with pain or to deal with death even. I know a lot of times at funerals, maybe, maybe I've even given the impression that you know God celebrates death. No, death is the enemy. So why did it turn out this way? Because God provided us with a great gift. He loved us so much that he gave us the ability not to love him back. God gave us a special gift known as free will, and with free will comes the choice to abuse it. Some did, some continue to do so. And Adam and Eve were the first to abuse that free will and use it in a way that disobeyed God. And when they did that, it brought two kinds of evil into the world. The first is moral evil. And moral evil is simply the immorality, the pain, and the suffering that comes with people being rude and abusive and arrogant and selfish and malicious and all of those different things. Someone has estimated that 95% of the world's suffering results from our own sin or the sin of others. For example, consider how often we bemoan the fact that there are starving people in the world. And we look at that and we say, why doesn't God do something? Why does God allow these people to suffer from a famine and starve to death? Consider that there is enough food in the world. This is a fact. There is enough food in the world for everyone to have 3,000 calories a day. Maybe God's looking at us and saying, why don't you do something? 
I've endowed you with the ability to do so. Why don't you do something about it? Think of it this way. Your hand can be used to hold a gun or your hand can be used to feed someone who is hungry. But if you hold a gun and shoot someone, you can't blame God for that. But that's what happens so often. It really bothers me, this phrase, everything happens for a reason. Anytime something happens, somebody says, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Yes, it does. And sometimes it's because you're dumb. Quit blaming God for your dumb choices. Because a lot of our suffering comes at the hands of ourselves. Another kind of suffering that was brought into the world because of the sin of Adam and Eve was natural. Natural evil. These are things like tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes and natural disasters. These too are the result of sin because when Adam and Eve sinned, they essentially told God, we don't need you. And we don't want your rules and regulations. And so God allowed them to turn their backs on him, and nature even revolted. It says that a curse was placed on the earth. So disease and pain became a part of the plan or part of the human experience, if you will. You can go back to the words of Paul when he said, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Nature longs for redemption. Even nature does. And the day when all wrongs will be made right. So the answer to the question why is very simple. The answer is sin. That's the answer. God did not create a world of pain and suffering. That was not his intent. However, he did allow or create the potential for it because that was the only way to also create the potential for love and goodness. And some respond and say, well, but couldn't, have God, couldn't God have foreseen all of this i mean didn't god know that this would happen and yet he did it anyway well think of it this way those of you who are parents have children surely you knew before you had children how difficult raising children might be because you have watched other parents deal with their children surely you knew that there was the possibility that they would throw fits and temper tantrums Surely you knew that there was even a possibility that as they got older, they might disobey, that they might revolt against their upbringing and turn their backs on you. But you had kids anyway. Why? Because it was worth the risk, right? It was worth the risk because it gave you the opportunity to raise something beautiful and something that you could love, and, and, and it fulfilled you in a way that nothing else could. Same way with God. God knew the potential. He knew that many people would disobey him, revolt against him. He knew that going in, but it was worth the risk to him. Many people have bought into this idea that their lives are carefully orchestrated and that there is some grand design for every minute detail or circumstance. And so as a result, God gets the blame for everything. God must be behind it. Understand that the evil in this world and the pain and the suffering may be things that God allowed, but he doesn't necessarily sanction. We've got to stop giving God the credit for the devil's handiwork. God didn't cause Adam and Eve to sin. God did not force David to sin with Bathsheba. God did not drive the nails through Jesus' wrists and feet. God did not sanction all these school shootings that we hear about nowadays. Nor did he sign off on those terrorists flying those planes into the World Trade Center towers, killing thousands. And God 
does not give people cancer, and he does not kill small children because he needs them in heaven more. That's ridiculous. That's not how God works. That's absurd. Stop giving God the credit for the sin that's in the world and that really started with Adam and Eve, right? I don't think it's wrong to ask God why. I don't. David did. Read the Psalms sometime. David constantly asked the question, why? So I don't believe it's wrong to ask the question, why? But when you go through the New Testament and you read the writings of Paul and others, they seem to be asking a different question, don't they? They seem to be asking this question. Why not? Now, that's interesting to me. Let me prove it by some of these scriptures. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that you also at the revelation of his glory may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. But is to glorify God in his name. 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5 says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7 in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the midst of personal suffering, many ask the question, why me? Maybe the better question is, why not me? Scripture presents suffering as a blessing, as a proof of faith, as a character builder, as a mark of being a true follower. Jesus' followers were often encouraged to endure through the trials and the tribulations and to see it as a means of an, an opportunity, I should say, to rejoice and to, and to share that joy because it's a way to truly express your faith and how strong it is because we all know Suffering is where the rubber meets the road in our faith, right? In Acts chapter 5, the apostles stood before the council. They had already been told not to preach and teach in the name of Jesus, but they didn't obey. And so now they find themselves in front of the council again, and again they tell them not to preach and teach in the name of Jesus or else, and then they flog them this time before they send them on their way. And notice verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame in his name. Very different perspective than what we have on suffering today, right? And it makes you ask the question, where were these men when Jesus was suffering? They were nowhere to be found. They ran and hid, right? Peter even denied Jesus three times. But something changed, and what changed was the resurrection of Jesus. Seeing that he was for real. That they could go all in with him. Let me ask you this. What do all these things have in common? Any ideas? Well, they're all made of steel. You're right. 
What else do they have in common? What, what about their value? What makes them useful? Well, it's the fact that they have been refined by fire. That's what makes them useful. The value of these items is directly tied to the fact that they have been tempered in the fire. Something that Peter says that we as Christians need in order to be valuable. That we need to be tested by fire. Because by being tested by fire, we become more valuable. There are three possibilities when we face adversity. Three things can happen if we allow them to happen. Number one, you slow down and you begin to think. Number two, you calm down and begin to listen. And number three, you look up and begin to learn. Why don't these things happen when we're, when we're doing well, when we're healthy, when everything's going great? Why don't these things happen then? Well, because life's good. And we're running at a breakneck speed. We're at warp speed, right? We're busy, we're, we're hurried, we have so many things going on, we're trying to fulfill the demands of our schedule, and so we never really slow down like we should, but suffering has a way of arresting us and stopping us in our tracks and causing us to pause and think about what it is that we're going through. All of a sudden, we reevaluate our relationship with God, we reevaluate our priorities, and now we start to look at things through the filter of death. It causes us to look at everything differently. Do you realize that suffering can be a ministry? You ever thought of suffering that way? Despite what we often think, suffering is a gift, not a glitch in the plan. Think about that for a moment. Colossians 4, 2 through 6, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make clear the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Person. Paul was imprisoned when he wrote this, yet he was empowered. He was writing to other Christians, some who were no doubt new to the faith, and these new Christians were paying attention to him, right? They were waiting to see how he would handle the adversity. And we would well understand if Paul said, God, why me? We could understand if Paul fell into a deep depression. We could understand if Paul was shaking his fist in anger at God, saying, why me, God? I have dedicated my life to you and to serving you. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul turns it into an opportunity to preach, to show others that he is not letting go of his faith no matter what comes his way. And as I've said to you before, people are always watching your life. They're always paying attention to you. You are preaching a sermon all the time. There are people that you will reach that I will never have an opportunity to reach. And they're looking at you not just when things are going great. They're looking at you when things are not so great. And they're looking at you to see how you're going to handle it. What will you do when adversity comes your way? Do you hang on to your faith in the midst of trials? Does hope and joy survive in the midst of suffering? You know, the world views suffering as a negative. Christians often view suffering as a negative. But what if suffering was all a part of the plan? What is the plan? 
We need to constantly be reminded of it. What is the plan? The plan is to prepare for eternity. No matter what you do in this life and no matter how great it is or how many things you accomplish, the number one purpose of this life is to prepare for eternity. Don't forget that. Which means whatever I have to endure to strengthen me, to build my character, to get me to the point where I am valuable, Whatever it takes, whatever it takes to prepare me for eternity, let it come. Because this is all about the next life. Not only that, it's all about getting as many people with me to heaven as possible, isn't it? So when people look at my life and they say, look, he's going through some stuff. How's he going to handle that? What's he going to do with that? How is he going to deal with, with suffering? Here's my charge to you. When dealing with suffering... Don't waste it. Don't waste the opportunity. The Bible presents suffering as an opportunity. Don't waste that opportunity. You're destined for future glory. Your suffering is an opportunity to show others that you truly believe in this Bible stuff and that you really believe that God is going to take care of you and that He is going to give you a place seated next to Him in eternity. 2 Corinthians 4 and 7, Paul writes, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Earthen vessels or jars of clay, your version may use. As earthen vessels, we all have cracks. And through those cracks, the light of Jesus shines through. We're not perfect, nor do we claim to be. But in the midst of our cracks, the, the light of Jesus shines through and shows people that you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be His. And as you belong to Him, you fight through the difficult times in life. It shows that we really do believe that there is a bigger picture, that we're willing to suffer if it's a means of preparation, and we're willing to speak loud and clear of the gospel even when it hurts. Because we want people to have that same hope. Now, let me add this disclaimer. I am in no way trying to say that what you're dealing with is minor. I am not trying to make light of what you're dealing with or what you're suffering through. I would never do that. I don't want to give the impression that what you're dealing with is just light and minor. But the Bible does. The Bible most definitely does. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There is a bigger picture involved. And I don't believe that the Holy Spirit is trying to minimize suffering. It's just that when compared to the bigger picture... When compared to heaven, your suffering, no matter how great it is, is momentary and light. So what seems unbearable is minuscule compared to eternity. That doesn't mean that you're wrong for shedding tears. That doesn't mean that you're wrong for breaking down. That doesn't mean that you're wrong for having days where it seems like you can't go on. It doesn't mean that you're wrong for, for being on the brink of depression even. What it does mean is that in the midst of all your suffering and whatever you're dealing with, you are in a win-win situation. 
Because if you come out of it, you come out of it stronger and you get to live longer. If you don't come out of it and your suffering leads to death, you're victorious. It is a win-win situation. It's kind of like the boy who had spent years in the hospital because when he was like four years old, he fell down a flight of stairs and just busted up his back really bad. But he always had a great attitude. One gentleman asked him, said, how old are you? He said, 17. He said, and how many years have you spent in hospitals? He said, in and out about 13. And the man said, and you think that's fair? And he said, sure, it's fair. God has all eternity to make it up to me. And he will. He will. I have no doubt about that. Paul says it. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, tells us, through Peter, tells us. And whatever God says, I can take to the bank. I have no doubt that whatever I deal with here on earth, God will make it up for me, make it up to me in eternity. You think of it this way. It's kind of like if 2018 started off really bad for you. Let's say the first day of 2018 started off with you had to have a root canal, your spouse wrecked the car, totaled the car, they ended up being okay, but you were out of car. Let's say that, uh, you know, work wasn't going well, your kids were getting in trouble at school. I mean, that first day of the year was horrible. But every day after that was awesome. For 364 other days, life could not have been better. You got a promotion at work, you got a raise at work, your kids made straight A's. You got to take an extended vacation to Hawaii, and at the end of the year, somebody comes up to you and says, so how was your 2018? You said, oh, it was glorious. It was the most amazing year I've ever had. And they said, well, didn't it start off pretty bad? And you think about it, and you go, oh, yeah, you kind of did. I remember that. Yeah, but that doesn't matter. It was wonderful. It was awesome. It was an amazing year, right? You'd have trouble thinking about that first day of the year because the other days were so great. Now, think about that in heaven. Think about after 50 million days in heaven, with an eternity left to go, somebody comes up to you and says, so how's the entirety of your existence been? And you say, it's been great. I mean, who wouldn't want this? I mean, 50 million days and it's going to continue forever? This is the best life anybody could enjoy. And they said, yeah, but didn't you really struggle on earth? You have to think about it and you go, yeah, I, I kind of did. For about 50 years, I struggled with cancer and with other different maladies. And yeah, it was pretty rough on earth. But who cares, right? I mean, everything's great now. I have nothing to worry about now. What's 50 years of an earthly existence that included suffering compared to 50 million in heaven and 50 million more to come and then some and then some, right? As one Christian put it, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth a life full of the most atrocious tortures on the planet will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. God's ultimate answer to suffering isn't an explanation. It's incarnation. Jesus suffered just like you did. Jesus came to this earth, suffered in the flesh, dealt with suffering on a level that many of us could never imagine. That's the answer. And he says, when you endure suffering in your life, use it. Don't waste it. See it as a ministry. Because it's all going to work out in the end. Again, I do not want to make light of your suffering this morning. Some of you are dealing with things perhaps that are beyond anything that any of us have had to deal with. 
I don't want to pull the wool over your eyes and try to make you think that it's not that big a deal because for you it is a big deal. But I do want to say this. The Bible presents suffering in a very different light than we often think of it. Use your suffering as an opportunity to strengthen your relationship with God. Use it as an opportunity to open your ears like maybe you never had before and to open the eyes of your heart and listen to what he is saying through his word. And don't waste it. Use it as a ministry to help others. If we can help you this morning, if you're struggling with something, Kevin's going to lead us in a song. If you have a need that we can, that we can help you with, come now as we stand and as we sing.